Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, Sectarianism, Proxies, and Desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Mabin, and today I'm joined by Liesel Hintz. Liesel is Assistant Professor of International Relations at Johns Hopkins University and the School of Advanced International Studies. Liesel works on Turkey, its neighborhood relations, uh, the intersection of Europe and the Middle East. She has a wonderful book from Oxford titled Identity Politics Inside Out, National Identity Contestation and Foreign Policy in Turkey. And she's also doing some really fascinating work on identity in Turkey using pop culture as a lens to look at some really interesting and important questions. So I'm absolutely delighted that Liesl can join us today. So thank you so much, Liesl. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for having me, Simon. The pleasure is mine. So Liesl, I must begin by asking the question that I always ask at the start, which is what got you interested in Turkey, the Middle East, uh, academia, international politics? What, what really piqued your interest there? Oh, gosh. Um, I think with Turkey, it was that I've always been fascinated by identity. Um, I even started off as a drama major uh, in undergrad because I was fascinated with roles and and how you project yourselves to different audiences uh, and how different audiences interpret different behaviors and senses of group and and self and all that kind of stuff. Lots of Irving Goffman kind of stuff. Amazing. And I think with Turkey, you know, you have this intersection of and and complex and changing overlap of all kinds of different understandings of identity from, you know, what we think of as these, you know, kind of old dusty binaries of of pious and secular. And obviously it's more complicated than that and Kurdish and Turkish, but, you know, Sunni and Alevi and and gender dynamics and socioeconomic dynamics. And what does it mean to be a white Turk or a black Turk? Um, You know, where does Turkey's uh, position fit in the world? How does it understand its role on the international stage. To be completely honest, you know, when I first started my PhD, I think the question or, or sort of the, the anecdote that came to my mind was this story of Turkey hiring an image consultant, like a marketing or nation branding consultant, which was kind of brand new back then, but now we've got some more research on it. Um, but, you know, they were basically trying to employ marketing techniques to help its EU bid. And I thought that was super fascinating. Like, yeah. you know, what kind of, yeah, what kind of symbols do you deploy? You know, what kind of of behaviors do you exhibit to what audiences? How much of Turkey feels European? Mm -hmm. How much of Europe thinks Turkey's European? So I think that kind of sparked the Turkey interest. And then, you know, you land in Istanbul and you're just hooked and and you can't get out (laughs) because you adore it so much and it frustrates you and and it makes you passionate about it. But yeah, I think it's the overlapping, you know, intersections of identity and how they shape society and politics and economics. Amazing. That's fascinating. Before we go into Turkey and and Istanbul and all of that, I must ask, a drama major? (laughs) Yep, I was a drama major. Um, I actually ended up as a German commerce and industry major because there was not an advisor for the drama program. And so I didn't have enough credits to graduate, but I'd taken all these German courses. Right. Um, So I was certified to translate for business transactions, um, but I had no idea what to do with that. So I went to cooking school. And I was a pastry chef in Chicago, actually. Okay. Um, 
Yeah. And then I did an MA in international relations. Um, then I wanted to do NGO work. So I worked as a homeless, uh, counselor and case manager for, um, an organization that worked with, uh, monolingual Spanish speaking farm worker families in Washington state. Um, so I have run the gamut of <laughs> lots of different roles, positions, identities, senses of self. Um, and I think that that all, lots of waitressing in the middle too, by the way, which is great for teaching because it makes you have to be on your feet all the time <laughs> yeah. and explain things in different ways to different audiences. But I think it all, you know, just leaves me with curiosity and passion for seeing how individuals understand their sense of self and group and, and, you know, social being in the world and how that varies across countries. I've had the opportunity my mom managed a musical and art workshop that was in a different country every summer. So I was traveling a lot when I was young. So languages and, and just, yeah, senses of self and group have always been super fascinating from drama to cooking. I, by the way, cooking shows play a huge role in the pop culture stuff that I do. So thank you cooking school. So yeah, it's been a circuitous journey, but a fun one. It has. Um, I think that's probably the most circuitous journey that we've had so far. We've had a whole host of engineers uh, and, and a range of other things, but no pastry chefs until now. So, so thank you. That's that's another career ticked off. But it's that's fascinating. I, I love that. That's that's the way that you got to where you are, and this this uh, sort of reflection on the sense of self and, and community. I must ask, though, I mean, of, of all the places to, to reflect on complex identities and overlapping identities, I, Turkey, Turkey is an interesting one. Of course, you, you've just articulated a bit of why, why Turkey. But can you say a little bit more, please? I mean, the, it immediately struck me that maybe um, I'm, I'm thinking immediately of, of Jerusalem as a similar type of city to Istanbul and all the, the complex layers of identity politics that play out there. And you, you could have obviously picked anywhere else in the world with, with these rich, complex, interwoven identities. Was it just um, the, a, a product of, of particular times that Turkey was, was engaging in these types of processes, trying to join the EU, etc.? Or was there something else there? So it's a really good question. Um, you know, when I was first starting my PhD and I, I had this kind of interest in what Turkey was doing in terms of nation branding, uh, you know, I considered um, working on the Balkans, actually. Um, I was really fascinated by language politics. Um, I was thinking of language divisions as an early warning conflict mechanism when Serbo-Croatian starts to break down and you start to see the need to immediately identify the other, mm. uh, and not just the other, but the enemy, as those identities become hard through conflict I thought was super fascinating. Um, I was fascinated by Georgia and South Ossetia and, you know, all kinds of, of different areas of, of language politics and, and you know, um, uh, external powers that have influence. So obviously Russia's um, influence in the Balkans, in Georgia and so forth. I think for me, Turkey... Um, Oh, it's such a good question. I love this kind of moment of self-reflection. I think just that one country encapsulated so many of these different overlapping identities. And of course, you're right that that's not unique. I mean, the constellation is unique to yeah, Turkey, sure. but you could go to Jerusalem, you could go to Delhi, you know, you could go to South Africa, you could go to all of these different places. You could, you know, with post-colonial legacies and all that that entails in terms of identity construction and reconstruction and deconstruction. Um, 
You know, one of the things that I noticed when I first got involved in, in Turkey is that, you know, people will say, oh, you know, we don't, we don't talk politics. You know, we'll talk about food. We'll talk about everything. But politics and identity is embedded in every discussion that that I hear, you know, my, my friends from Turkey talk about. Um, and they're so passionate about it. And they have such differing understandings. Um, and I think because Turkey underwent, um, you know, during the early Republican period, such a project of nation building, like maybe one of the most explicit, top-down, we're going to eradicate previous understandings, we're going to slough off, you know, not 100%, they do incorporate some of the Ottoman influences, um, as my colleague Nick Danforth uh, writes about really articulately. But, you know, this, we're going to try to create and, and need to create for economic development, for, you know, security of our territory, we need to create this identity. And then all the backlash that comes from that, you know, when you when you try to eradicate or suppress identities, when you tell people they can't spell their names in particular ways, or when you move them off your territory, or when you slaughter them, you know, there's consequences to those in terms of the kind of identities that push back later. And so I think it was all of those, that particular constellation of the many different identities, the various nation building projects, the resurgence of identities that have been suppressed. Um, I mean, I think you see that so markedly in Recep Tayyip Erdogan's, uh, you know, ability to mobilize people around this idea of we've been marginalized, we've been oppressed. Um, and obviously, you know, pious Sunni Muslims were, um, you know, there was legislation that prevented them from expressing their identity in the public sphere. So I think it's it's that dynamic as well, kind of this, you know, push down, rise up, contestation, who are we, why does it matter, how does it spill over into foreign policy? All of those things, Turkey is just the kind of the, the crystallization or, or a microcosm of all of those dynamics. It's fascinating hearing you talk about all of this and the interplay between them. And I, I, I can certainly see the appeal of, of Turkey. It's a fascinating place. And, and having read your work, I, I, I can feel it all sort of coming to life in it and, and just hearing you talk so passionately about it. I, it's absolutely fascinating. Can I just take you back to your first uh, first trip to Istanbul then? What what was sure. it like when you got there, having spent time um, studying it, having spent time reading about all these different contradictions, all these different interwoven identities? What was your experience like there? Oh, my goodness. Um, I don't know if I did this right, to tell you the truth, although I don't know if there's a right trajectory, but I... <laughs> arrived in Istanbul in the summer of 2010, not knowing a single word of Turkish, right. not even Merhaba. So I'm going there for the Turkish language and cultural program um, at Boazici, which has an excellent summer program, um, immersion program. And luckily on the plane next to me is a Turkish woman who's going back and forth from Germany. Um, obviously there's a very large um, you know, Turkish diaspora. Yeah population in Germany. And so I'm able to use my German. And I was like, okay, <laughs> how much German do I remember from college? And I was like, hmm, I can tell you that Gesellschaft mit beschränkter Haftung is a, you know, LLC, but I don't know if I know what purple is. Um, but, you know, we, I somehow was able to have a conversation and she was like, sorry, you, you mean you're, you're alone and you're going to get off in Istanbul and you don't know any Turkish and do you know what you're doing? I was like, I, you know, I'll, I'll manage. And I had the address of the, you know, the dorm that we were staying at at Boazici. So I was able to give it to the taxi driver, but 
I mean, I think it was just such a whirlwind of sensory explosion, Uh, you know, as someone who hadn't been there before, um, who was really focused on learning the language. And here's what I think I did wrong. I think I was, and I remember I getting back, getting back and talking with my dissertation advisor, Mark Lynch, and he's like, wait, what did you do? What I did was I focused so much on the language immersion experience. I basically like, you know, cloistered myself in my dorm room and memorized and memorized and memorized and worked, worked, worked and tried to do everything I could from a language immersion perspective. Right. Um, right. And, you know, I, I did, obviously I had, you know, trips to, through Istanbul and so forth. Um, but I think I didn't see as much as I could have. I was absolutely fascinated in the excursions that we had. Um, one of the things that I noticed was that we had a movie night. And so I got these windows into some of these debates on identity from watching Bliss, for example, um, Zulfi Levanavi's um, uh, novel that's translated into the movie Mutlubuk. Um, and so I think watching those movies and like seeing our TAs argue vociferously about whether women should wear headscarves in a mosque or, Mm -hmm. you know, as a sign of respect, or is that compromising my identity if I go in? Like the identity debates that even my TAs and instructors were having were super, super fascinating. And that was the only exposure that I had because again, I was just so focused on the language learning. So the next time that I was in Turkey, um, which was for a critical language scholarship in Bursa, the next summer, um, I really tried to take advantage of the complete experience. Um, so any, you know, new language learners out there, make sure you don't just stay in your dorm room, get out and and see everything you can, because there's so much to learn. Although one, one anecdote I can share is that, um, there was like the, you know, the market that you go to, to get your bottled water and your tomatoes and stuff. And, um, I was known as the e-gunlar girl, which means like the hello, good day girl, because (laughs) I was learning, the only thing that I knew how to say is like, and you can say it when you come in, you can say it when you leave. <laughs> so I was, oh, look, the girl came. And it first like made me cry. But then, then you, you know, you take it affectionately. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, so it was definitely a, a, a transformative experience. Um, but I was so focused on language learning that I didn't get as out as much as I could have. So if anyone can learn from my mistake, get out there and don't just be the Igunlar girl. <laughs> I like that. I guess you've had plenty of opportunities to to put that mistake um, to bed, though, and and see see Turkey and experience all of these these wonders. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, Bursa was the language learning experience in 2011. Um, Ankara, I did the same program in 2012, um, and actually, even um, the first year that I was in Istanbul, I did take a trip to Ankara um, with a dear friend, an amazing um, scholar, Özge Tekin, who without whom I probably wouldn't have gotten to know Turkey nearly as well as I did. Um, so, I mean, there were these experiences, but but then spending more time in Ankara in 2012 um, really gives you a sense of difference, you know, across what is Istanbul, what is Bursa, what is Ankara. Um, yeah. So I didn't even talk about regional identities. You know, you have these these regional identities, these differences um, that are quite striking. Um, you know, spending time in Antalya, doing research in Trabzon, Giresun, going to Konya. Um, you, it's just, you get very different feelings, very, you know, as you do in, in any large country, but I think, you know, there are more conservative cities in Turkey, like a Konya or Kayseri or Bursa, 
Um, you know, even Istanbul, you break it down and the neighborhoods are so different from each other. Um, so, I mean, I don't mean to like exoticize it. I mean to convey just, you know, fascination with this wealth of different ways of living, different understandings of what it means to be a citizen of Turkey, different socioeconomic dynamics that shape that. And the fact that questions of identity, you know, as the AKP, the Justice and Development Party was starting to consolidate its power, you had people that were really afraid um, of what it was going to do to Turkish identity. And you have those people now saying, look, I told you so. Um, so I kind of got in there right in the middle um, in 2010, where uh, you know there were still some concerns about the AKP, but there were those who were kind of willing to go along with its changes, hoping that they weren't going to sort of what others have called Islamize the, the society. So yeah, I think it was a pivotal time to be there. Um, and then lastly, I would just say, that in 2012, when I went to Ankara, that was my my continuous year of fieldwork. I've spent summers there since, but I was there about, like, I think 16 months or so. Um, and that was when the Gezi Park protests broke out. Um, and so I was in Ankara, but I went back and forth between Istanbul and Ankara. And all of a sudden, you had everything about what does it mean to be a citizen of this country? What kinds of freedoms do we have? You know, what what kind of identity are they trying to push onto us? Everything was alive and vibrant and everybody kind of woke up. I Before 2013, you know, people would, would grumble in cafes. And, and I don't mean to be dismissive, but, you know, they, they were concerned with other things. But sure. I think 2013 was an explosion of frustration, of built up, pent up frustration at the AKP and its increasing authoritarianism that was then, you know, with the police crackdowns, just on stage for the world to see. Yeah, of um, course. So, so it's it's been it's been fascinating to be in all these different places at these different kind of moments of peak contestation. Can you share anything about about your your Gezi uh, recon uh, your, oh, your Gezi memories? <laughs> Tear gas hurts. Right. <laughs> um, no, I I don't want to make light of it um, because people died and people yeah. lost eyes and people were paralyzed and um, it was. It was such a sense of contrast because it was a sense of jubilation, a carnival. Like people have written on this much better than I can, but a carnivalesque atmosphere. You know, people would bring you know bowls for dogs to drink water out of. They would set up libraries. There was a very communal atmosphere at Gezi. So my experience of Gezi was mostly in Kula Park um, and Kuzalai in Ankara. For those who know the Tutnala region in Ankara, for those who know it. Um, and in uh, Taksim and Nishantasha and other areas of Istanbul. So those are the two main cities that I um, experienced Gezi in. And there was only one time that I was in a protest or I was observing a protest um, that uh, got very, very heavily tear gassed. And that was terrifying. Um, and it was fascinating to me because you had all of these people kind of milling around you know, not really knowing what they were supposed to do. They just kind of wanted to be there. They wanted to resist. They wanted to kind of stand up as a blockade against the police. Um, but, you know, it was kind of only as people were turning around to disperse that I saw the police put on their gas masks and raise their weapons, essentially. And they yeah. are weapons because they yeah. were not shooting these tear gas canisters at the ground or in the air. They were shooting them at people. And that was absolutely terrifying. Um, I remember you can't breathe, you know, you're, you're blinded. I, as an idiot, have my iPad out trying to take pic like pictures while I'm running. Um, people are helping each other. Strangers are helping each other. Um, people are picking up 
live, you know, canisters and throwing them back. Like I, I'm not saying anything new and I don't want to, you know, co-opt the, the Turkish people's experience because they experienced it much more than I did. But to just have that glimpse of how people were willing to stand in the face of possible death and say, you don't get to act like this and we're going to push back against you and we're going to resist, um, was an incredibly moving experience. It was something that people missed, you know, it, so that starts in, you know, very late May, early June of 2013. And then by August, September, it starts to peter out and then the weather gets cold and people go back to school. And, and a lot of my, you know, people that I spoke with had this profound sense of loss, like that they missed the experience of, you know, pushing back and resisting and being part of something, being part of this important political moment, but also this sense of belonging. And that from an identity perspective for me was so fascinating because, and again, a lot of people have written on this, but you saw, you know, you'd have the Charsha, right? Which is the, um, the fan group of Besiktas, the soccer club in yeah. Istanbul. Um, and they, you know, they bring their fans and they bring their flares and they bring the the music and the energy and so forth. But they're kind of known as, you know, ch- chanting homophobic slurs and, you know, not necessarily maybe the most diverse and inclusive group. Um, and they were able to kind of stand up against the police. And so from a comparative politics perspective, we know that those kinds of pre-mobilized groups are good for, for being able to stand your ground in a protest. But, you know, you, you saw them like walking over to, and a lot of the, the members of the LGBT community, LGBTQ community that I interviewed said it meant so much to us that they came over and said, we're sorry. We're sorry that we denigrated you. We're sorry we used those slurs. We see that you're just as tough as we are. You're a delicanla. You're just as much of a tough guy as we are. And so because you're standing here in the face of possible death. And so that is a collective identity building experience that we don't often think about when we think about identity politics like Turkish, Kurdish, ethnic, religious, right? Those constitutive moments of solidarity can also help break down some of those kind of intergroup prejudices that we have. And I think Gezi was a real moment for that. Yeah, of course. One of the things that you've been doing really well, Liesl, and it's absolutely fascinating, you've had, um, you've had bits of work published in a whole host of different areas, and I'll put some, some links to this in the, in the notes, is using different means of interrogating sort of relationships between rulers and ruled and state-society relations, using popular culture as a way of, of getting to the heart of some of these broader existential questions about belonging and about national identity and, and other forms of identity. And it just struck me that from those protests and the, the ensuing sort of closing down of political space, there had to be a turn elsewhere for, for expressing political um, ideas, identities, belonging in different ways. So I wonder, can you tell us a little bit about what you're trying to do with with this this move towards using using popular culture as a way of interrogating ideas of identity and belonging, please? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for bringing that up. Um, I first kind of got fascinated by pop culture as a source, as a text, um, kind of for a researcher. I saw it as this, you know, whether it's the a, a film, whether it's the lyrics to a song, whether it's a novel, I saw it as this really fascinating empirical window onto 
debates about super sensitive, super contested identity subjects that particularly as foreign researchers and particularly as an American researcher in Turkey who is always going to be thought of as an agent no matter what you try to tell people. There are yeah. other reasons to learn Turkish than working for the CIA, I promise you. <laughs> um, but, you know, that we don't necessarily have access to. And so reading, you know, every time I would go back and forth from Ankara to Istanbul, I'd pick up a, you know, what's the novel that's that's selling? What, you know, what are people fascinated by? Um, and I got Kurdish romance novels and I got super nationalist conspiracy theory novels. Right. Um, really, like, fascinating takes. Like, and who's the audience? And, and what kinds of, of how, who do they think the good guys and the bad guys are? And what does that say about, you know, understandings of collective belonging in Turkey? And so one of the ways that I thought about using that was in a survey um, that I did of university students. Um, and because I wanted to ask about like, oh, what do you think is the ideal Turk? Like, what does it mean to be Turkish, essentially? But how do you go about asking that super loaded question as a foreigner in a university setting where they're used to writing down exam answers? So how do you not get rote textbook answers? Yeah. And so I asked them. You know, which Dizzy character, which Turkish, you know, drama series, soap opera series character do you think best represents the ideal um, uh, Turkish, you know, citizen of Turkey um, and, and why? And then, you know, which uh, which one do you think represents the worst? And then kind of by getting them to articulate why they thought that, you know, Polat Alamdar from Valley of the Wolves was the best ideal for a Turkish citizen, you can understand sort of where they're coming from in terms of what ideal behavior and membership criteria look at. So I've always kind of thought of pop culture as, you know, anthropologists and sociologists and media and cultural scholars do as this great window into um, into these debates. But what I'm working on now with the current book project um, is looking at pop culture, not just as kind of a resource for researchers, but rather this arena in which debates about identity take place. And so I look at it from sort of three different levels of analysis, the foreign policy level of analysis, the regime level of analysis, and the opposition level of analysis. And just briefly, based on um, you know the point that you raised about how political space is constricting, I think this is kind of what's pushing me in that direction, particularly in focusing on the opposition. Because what we know from comparative studies, um, whether it's comparative political studies um, or sociology or, again, media and culture scholars, that you know, people can find forms of creative resistance. Um, Marwan Crady and a number, James Scott and Hank Johnston and a number of um, Charles Tripp scholars are working on how individuals can kind of use creative forms of protest. And for me, I look at how those who are producing pop culture, that is the artists, the filmmakers, the songwriters and so forth, how they can either very explicitly, you know, criticize the regime or sometimes insert subtle references into their text, even hidden meanings that maybe not everybody gets and therefore you avoid the crackdown. Yeah. But also how individuals who aren't artists and don't have movie budgets and don't have all that kind of a platform can be reproducers of that content and how they can, you know, take a Game of Thrones image and superimpose it onto Erdogan's face and say Tayyip Winter is coming. And all of a sudden you have a catchy, witty, um, you know, very clear for those who are in on the, the game, those who know what the reference is, way of saying, 
I'm pushing back against you. This is my form of resistance. And so that's what I want to do is, is think about pop culture, both as how those who are producing it can subvert authority and build solidarity by saying, Hey, I'm critical of this as well. And then how individuals who maybe don't have access to those kinds of resources are able to kind of reproduce um, and repurpose those texts, that pop culture content for their own political message. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. I have two questions, if I may. The first one is is perhaps rather um, silly, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because I think a bit of clarity is perhaps needed. When you talk about pop culture, what do you mean exactly? And the second is, have the, the, the Turkish government, has the the uh, the Erdogan regime started to become aware of this? Has there been an awareness that this form of political engagement, this playful engagement with popular culture actually has a more, um, more serious and more, has more gravitas to it? So the first question is not a silly one at all. And I think anyone working on pop culture worth their salt is going to have a section in their book or their article that talks about <laughs> what they mean by pop culture. Sure. Um, sure. Because, no, it's, it's an important one because, you know, we can talk about like, um, you know, high culture and low culture or folk culture, um, you know, is what's popular, um, you know, who defines what's popular? What yeah. kind of genres are we talking about? Um, is, is something, is pop culture only if it's mass produced, like mass media? Um, or can it be like a counterculture? Um, you know, can rap, even the, the initial burgeoning forms of rap, is that pop culture? Or is that counterculture? So it's a very, very good question. Um, the way that I approach it is, um, as some other scholars have done, maybe taking the easy way out, but for me, I'm interested in the broadest swath possible of ways in which regimes can use cultural content, entertainment media to shape populations and how those populations could push back. So I'm really interested in the broadest definition possible. And so I take, um, you know, any kind of entertainment media cultural product that is considered popular, um, that is uh, shared, appreciated, purchased, consumed um, by a relatively large number of people. So that could be um, you know, everything from popular music, um, different forms of popular music. So arabesque could be considered popular culture. Rap could be considered popular culture. Um, Anadolu rock can be considered popular culture. So I'm really trying not to define it from the perspective of like an art critic or something like sure. that. Okay. Um, and then, you know, also looking at uh, materials that are, are coming from the regime. So say state produced or state sponsored television shows or say cooking shows that are showing up on state owned uh, television stations. Um, although it's worth, worth noting in Turkey that, you know, the, the content that you see on even non-state owned television stations is very heavily influenced by slash controlled by the, the AKP because you have, you know, about 90 to 95% of media outlets essentially under government control due to um, just the political economy of holding companies and the financial and construction and banking interests that they have that don't incentivize them to show critical content on their airwaves, essentially. Um, so, so whether it's state produced, um, whether it is, uh, you know, a 
say, state-friendly um, artist, someone like uh, Bülent Arsoy, for example, um, or it's someone like uh, Agai Suakul, um, or it's someone who's extraordinarily and openly critical, like some of the rap artists that I discuss. So it's it's a it's a really broad net, but I'm casting it deliberately um, in order to to capture the most uh, sources and and sort of um, forms of pop culture content that I can. So I include music, film, television, um, even novels, which some might say is not pop culture, but I very much see as, as being pop culture. Um, memes, graffiti, um, you know, things that become popular culture. Like I would say that the penguin, for example, in Turkey has become a symbol of, of resistance and that icon, that image uh, you know, because CNN Turk was playing a penguin documentary while CNN International was showing the police crackdown on the Gezi Park protests. So protesters kind of deployed that symbol right. as a sign of resistance. You know, that that kind of takes on its own cultural status. Um, and so you can create uh, icons or sort of symbols of pop culture as well. So again, casting the broadest net possible. Um, and then in terms of is the government kind of catching on to how opposition members are using these forms, it's, you know, it's a tough position to be in as a researcher when you're writing on something that maybe you shouldn't be exposing or, yeah, you know, exactly. are you shedding too much light or bringing too much attention to particular opposition strategies? So it's a, it's kind of an ethical question, I think, um, to, to bring to light and to grapple with as a scholar. Um, but one of the things that I think helps to answer your question is looking at the new data localization laws um, that are coming into play in Turkey and kind of the attempts to regulate Netflix uh, or control the, the content on Netflix, um, control streaming platforms, Blue TV and other uh, streaming networks. So basically recognizing that precisely as you said earlier, because the political space for opposition, say, in the public square or on the street has been constricted so much, you now see that kind of spilling out into other creative spaces and pop culture is one and social media media is another. And so social media um, can be a forum for sharing pop culture, but it can also be an like memes of television shows and so forth that have political content. But it's also an arena in which, um, you know, these kinds of critical messages can be uh, mobilized very quickly. And I think the government has very much recognized that. And I think that they're attempts to regulate Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and Netflix and other, uh, you know, online platforms recognizes that they see that that kind of opposition is threatening, that it's not just, you know, some cute, uh, you know, oh, isn't it funny that they've got a Game of Thrones meme around Erdogan's face or isn't it neat that this rap video, you know, that's critical of the government, um, whether explicitly or implicitly got, you know, 10 million views very quickly. I think that there's a recognition that social media is not just about online protest, but it's about mobilizing online dissent that then can translate into more concrete forms of protest. Sure. Um, and so I, I think that the, the, the attempts that they're making to regulate definitely recognize that they see that as a threat. Right. That's interesting. And I guess um, something to, to keep an eye on as, as things move forward in Turkey. 
But Liesl, we've taken up a great deal of your time already. It's been absolutely fascinating talking with you. I've, I've learned a lot. I've got so much to think about moving forward. But I have one final question, if I may. Sure. And that is, when can we expect to see this new book coming out? Oh, my goodness. Okay. Um, so the book is under contract with Cambridge University Press. Um, I'm hoping for uh, a release in 2022. Um, I unfortunately was supposed to be in Turkey this whole year. Uh, this is my sabbatical term, um, but the pandemic happened. So we're, you know, everybody's working as well as we can from sure. home. Um, but I'm definitely hoping to get back to Turkey for some more field work. Um, but, you know, that's the other thing about pop culture that I think is great is that it, it really serves as a source of texts. Um, you know, even if you can't be there, you can watch the content. You can you can look at the political context. You can look at the, the ways in which people are criticizing it and who's criticizing it. Um, you know, and so I think that that itself becomes kind of a, a research tool from far away when we can't, you know, get into the production studios and, and do the audience focus groups and all the kinds of stuff that, that we would like. But so hopefully sometime in, in 2022, and the proposed title is Fight Scenes, um, which I, I hope captures the contestation and the, the real intense, um, you know, what's at stake yeah. in, in a sense uh, in these identity debates, but also seeing how they play out on screen. So hopefully we'll we'll see that coming to a bookstore near you very soon. Amazing. A wonderful title. I'm really looking forward to, to getting my hands on it. So roll on 2022. But Liesl, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, speaking with you. Uh, good luck with the sabbatical. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Simon. The pleasure was mine. It was a great discussion. Take Thank care. you so much. And as always, thanks for listening. Until next time.